The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, a podcast produced by RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and today's guest is something of a surprise. But first, I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the heavy heart I have carried since learning of the death on Friday night of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whose tireless efforts on behalf of women meant that I could do things like be the only signatory on my home mortgage, open a bank account and credit cards under my name without asking a male relative to co-sign, have a job regardless of my gender, and raise a family while working. I was able to keep my jobs in the U.S. Senate and later the Nature Conservancy when I was pregnant with my two boys, and I can start a business on my own, all things that I totally took for granted until I started to read about her legacy of fighting for women and gender equality. I'm eternally grateful for her efforts, so rest in power, Justice Ginsburg. Today's guest is former Pennsylvania Congressman Ryan Costello, who represented the 6th District of Pennsylvania from 2015 to 2019. Named the ninth most bipartisan member of Congress in 2017 by the Luger Center, he was an original member of the House Climate Solutions Caucus. In 2019, shortly after he left office, he penned the Wall Street Journal op-ed, Lesson from 2018, Republicans Must Deal with Climate Change. I will link the piece in the show notes, but I know the Wall Street Journal paywall is very strict, so you will have to have a subscription to read it. But a key line, one that our executive director, Bob Inglis, often notes, is that the Republican Party will never earn the votes of millennials unless it gets serious about finding solutions to climate change. When Ryan left public office, he started his own consulting firm, and he also serves as the managing director of Americans for Carbon Dividends, the lobbying arm of the Climate Leadership Council, which, if you've been listening, you know was founded by Ted Halstead, who recently and unexpectedly lost his life. Americans for Carbon Dividends advocates for the Carbon Dividend Plan created by Ronald Reagan alumni James A. Baker and George Schultz. But I will let Ryan talk more about that plan in our main segment. Are you a subscriber yet to the EcoRight Speaks? It's so easy to add our podcast to your listening library. That means every Tuesday it will pop up on your app, no searching or waiting for a link from us involved. The more subscribers we get, the more popular we look, and the easier it is for others to find us. On Apple Podcasts, you can drop us a five-star review, maybe a one-liner expressing your thoughts, and Price Atkinson will read it on the air. Before we turn to my conversation with Ryan Costello, I decided it would be fun to play a little game called Whose Line Is It Anyway? I shared a quote with the RepublicEN.org team and asked each person not to Google to find the answer, but to record their gut instinct on who said the line. So here's the quote. We better hope it's man-made because if it's not, we're in trouble. I will just read it again. We better hope it's man-made because if it's not, we're in trouble. So take a moment to come up with your answer as you listen to our team responses. From our engagement director, Wen Lee. That is Mitt Romney. From our executive director, Bob Inglis. It's uh, Bob Inglis, and I think I might have said uh, we better hope it's human cause because if it's not, we're in trouble. But 
I think I borrowed that line from my friend David Frum, who might have been the first one that I heard it from. From our Teddy Roosevelt face champion, Alex Bosmoski. So it's kind of a trick question, because the answer is Senator Romney paraphrasing Bob Inglis, although I don't know if he knew he was paraphrasing Bob. When Bob says it, he usually says, we better hope it's man-made because then there's something we can do about it. So I'm going to have to admit that I was trying to trick my team. I thought it was said by Lindsey Graham quoting Mitt Romney, but it sounds like it was Senator Graham quoting Senator Romney quoting Bob quoting David Frum. So everyone wins in this elaborate game of EcoRight Telephone. And now, my conversation with former Pennsylvania Congressman Ryan Costello. Welcome back, listeners. As promised, I'm joined here today by former Pennsylvania Congressman Ryan Costello. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It's great to be with you. So first, on behalf of the RepublicEN.org team, I just wanted to offer condolences. Um, we were all shocked to hear of Ted Halstead's death and really rocked the uh, carbon dividend world. Uh, he was a leader in every sense of the word, and um, it was tragic and uh, left me speechless. And, you know, I have read a couple of um, commentaries by some leading public intellectuals who um, really captured the man and his contribution, um, the world of climate um, policy, as well as more broadly, um, just dedicating his life to issues and trying to move the country forward and looking at things through a clear lens of what problems need fixed and and what are the right solutions and, and building coalitions from there. So, um, I think it's, it is certainly very important to, to spend a moment to reflect upon his contribution. Um, and, you know, as, as I sit here in, on this podcast with you, I uh, work uh, with and for the Climate Leadership Council and the Americans for Carbon Dividends, which is a, a leading, um, probably the leading um, climate uh, carbon pricing organization that he built from nothing um, and has grown it to be the largest um, coalition of corporate and, and nonprofit um, participation um, in the field. So um, just an amazing man uh, with an amazing legacy. And I think that that is a really important note, just the, the coalition, right? It spans people like George Schultz, who is in his late 90s, down to somebody like Akira O'Brien, who was a guest on one of our early episodes and is a big friend of Republic EN and is just starting off in her career. You have, as you mentioned, corporate interests, nonprofit interests. So that carbon dividend idea is really something that seems to appeal to a broad um, group of people and his his efforts to put that together is um, one thing that I was struck, I know, um, so as I mentioned to our listeners earlier, you served in Congress from 2015 to 2019. And when I was preparing for our conversation, I saw that the Luger Center had named you one of the most bipartisan members of Congress back in 2017, which feels like it could have been 3 million years ago. Pretty much anything pre-COVID feels like it was a million years ago. I am just sort of thinking now, here we are in 2020, and it almost feels like bipartisanship is a dirty word. Like how 
how did that happen? How did we get to this point where it's not, people don't congratulate you anymore on bipartisanship? So I think, you know, there's obviously a lot of money to be made by some of these special interest groups and frankly, cable uh, television to just play to the base of each party. Um, even though, frankly, the listenership or audience that they speak to is, you know, 2% of the, of the population. I think, it, you know, as we sit here in September of 2020, former members such as myself, members who are now former members such as myself, um, you know, many of my closest friends were sort of the more moderate Republican members. They all lost, right? So um, you don't have sort of the middle uh, nucleus of Republican members, which were geared towards uh, working in a bipartisan manner. Um, and for, and for Democrats, you know, if you are in a swing district or um, in a democratic district, you are defined by your antipathy towards president Trump. I mean, it is very easy to be a Democrat right now in Washington. All you need to do is just, you know, go after Trump every single day and, um, participate in sort of the outrage culture that has become what our political news feeds are on either side of the aisle. And so there's no incentive really to work in a bipartisan manner based on that. And frankly, not much is very get, getting done right now, although maybe we do get an energy bill uh, here by the end of the year. I know the House is voting on it this week and, and the Senate may take it up. I, I think, you know, social media probably plays a little bit of a role um, but it, it still becomes the responsibility of elected officials to, you know, push back against their, their colleagues who take things too far, push back against media in their own kind of political stratosphere that isn't being, you know, intellectually honest or is not being constructive. I always did that. You know, there are some members that do that, but we should we should be evaluating elected officials not by how hard they go after the other side, but how willing they are to take on their own um, feedback loop that you know the majority of their constituents um, might be predisposed to. Because you have to break out of the shell of your own party to really get things big, transformational things done. Right. And I think climate change is definitely one of those issues that is yes. really ripe for bipartisan cooperation. And, you know, you had noted in the um, Wall Street Journal op-ed back at um, beginning of 2019 that for Republicans to continue to win elections, they needed to have a climate plan. And, you know, from your mouth to Kevin McCarthy's ears, I think he did spend, you know, some time in the earlier part of this year before COVID really got a stranglehold on us putting together that suite of bills that, you know, in my mind, were they really enough? Is a trillion trees the right answer? I, I don't know. I, I understand that anytime you're kind of getting newly involved in an issue, you have to take baby steps. And so that kind of seems what he's been trying to usher, right? Are these baby steps toward people being comfortable, people in his caucus being comfortable with climate action, but we kind of need bold steps right now. I think that's right. And Listen, I, I will say to you that I don't think that anything that the Democrats have put forward is sufficient to address the issue. So uh, it always seems, you know, the, de the Democrats kind of own the issue in the sense that they always talk about it. But I have not seen a, a comprehensive policy that really gets to the core of the issue and has a 
20, 30, 40 year horizon on how you get to where you need to get. It's easy to talk about what your long-term objective should be. It obviously is more challenging politically too, um, to lay out the roadmap on how you get there, which is why when I left, you know, the one thing that I wanted to do in the climate space was be for something specific that was comprehensive and bold. And, because it's and not enough to be against the Green New Deal, right? You have to be for something. Yeah. And you know what? You know, just to push back again on the Democrats and the Green New Deal, it's not even a policy, right? It's just a, it's a, it, at most, it's a resolution, I think. They don't deal with the nuts and bolts of how to get there. So I think Kevin and, you know, Bruce Westerman, who I served with as a friend of mine with the Trillion Trees, you know, those are good, uh, what I would call intermittent steps, incremental steps um, that are, frankly, very constructive and Democrats should support them. Now, Democrats can be critical that things don't, that that doesn't go far enough. Um, Okay, but support what is being proposed and add to it, right? And that's, to me, what you're supposed to be doing as a lawmaker is just- That's the art of the negotiation that you are supposed to undertake in office. I remember um, that just reminds me of a hearing. So I worked for John Warner in the Senate in my kind of last tour of duty. I had a couple different bosses in the Senate and his bill with Joe Lieberman was the the first bill to get marked up out of committee, the first climate change bill, I should say, to get marked up out of committee. And then on the Senate floor, you know, we lost because we didn't have 60 votes, but we had 53, and I think a great number of Republicans who either voted for it or said they would if they were, had been present. It was um, 2008, so it was um, prime political um, campaign season. After he left office, he was invited to testify um, before Waxman and Markey's committee. And we were in the anteroom waiting for him to go, and, and um, former Vice President Al Gore was there, and John Dingell was, um, must have been... He was no longer chairman of the committee, but he was still senior on the committee. And so Mr. Dingle and Senator Warner start having this conversation about, you know, who wants what on climate change. And Dingle says, you know, the environmentalists, they want the whole loaf of bread. And Warner says, yes, sometimes we just need half a loaf. We just need to get half a loaf. And it was this moment where it just struck me, right? Like that is, I would take half a loaf of bread right now on climate change. Easily. And frankly, we should be taking half loaves on a lot of things yeah. um, because things don't get done unless you do. You know, it's, it goes back, it's such a simple statement, but it really is profound in terms of how you manage public policy, which is don't let, you know, the perfect be the enemy of the good. And we do it all. And, and that's what I got back to about, you know, where our media is and, and, and the things, the influences that all of us get on a daily basis is to take the good and make it unacceptable and offer some other, you know, uh, picture of perfection, which is unattainable for any number of different reasons. And it frustrates the hell out of me. I, I think it's foolish for people to play into that game because as a policymaker, I, I think, and I always viewed, and I served in local office too, like what are you doing that will have a, even if it's just a vote, it doesn't have to be you and your personal legacy, but what are you doing to make the world a better, a better place for the next 40 or 50 years or the next century. And, you know, you will play at best a small, temporary, modest little part of that. But what else are you doing this for if it's not for that reason? Right. Yeah. So. And, and those like sort of half loaves, they also show people, right, what's possible. And so, 
That's a very good point. That's an excellent point. You're right. You build on it. You build on progress, but you need some. You need the starting point. Yeah, that's very. That's very. It's a very good way of putting it. So how do we get a carbon, how do we get carbon pricing then to kind of be that starting point? Because I think it is clear that we, that's where we need to head. And whether it's the approach that you take at Americans for Carbon Dividends or the one that Bob Inglis prefers where you take the, um, you know, you make the carbon tax revenue neutral and border adjustable and use the revenues to um, offset payroll tax or um Sure. Like that, like the whole well, the border, price on carbon. So how do we get there? Yeah. So, so the border carbon adjustment is also a piece of the, of the uh, Baker Schultz plan. And that is where I would start. Uh, and, and that is you will not be able to implement a, a, a comprehensive climate policy, which would include pricing unless it has application globally. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we, as Americans and our political system and our geographic boundaries will always be insufficient to solve the problem unless the rest of the world participates. And so by requiring other countries um, who participate in the global economy, which is, you know, virtually all economies, um, for them to um, have a relationship with the American consumer and and ship goods here, um, they would pay that price as well. at the border unless they had a commensurate uh, pricing policy uh, in their own country. And, and the belief, and I think it's well-founded, is that um, countries would, would have to participate. Um, you know, the, and the, I think the, it would also um, enable the EU uh, sort of framework to mature out um, and, and gain uh, more traction as well. So that's, that's a big piece of it, which is, you know, if I were to dumb it down, you know, making China pay, right? Which it, it, they are a heavy polluter. They uh, bring a lot of cheap goods um, into this country. It's not just China, but I mean, it's a, it's a big piece of it. And I think the other big component for, for people's understanding um, is why pricing actually brings down, reduces carbon emissions substantially. And that is you are, um, you're making uh, cleaner energy sources more competitive in the marketplace, and you are sending a price signal to those who do emit more carbon that the um, that to to offset those emissions, more investment and more R and D in carbon capture, um, in carbon removal, in uh, alternative sources of energy, all those in, in the fit from an efficiency perspective all those features of our way of life um, help drive down costs much more substantially. Whereas right now, you know, really it's, it's, it's just the, it's the, it's our environment that sustains the cost, which we all bear much more expensively than we realize everything from, you know, insurance rates um, to, Infrastructure, which doesn't last as long, to frankly, um, national security issues, which I think are are not very well understood, um, you know, and on and on and on. Where energy optimists and climate realists stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. I mean, the national security issues were what compelled my old boss John Warner to 
um, want to take on climate change at the time that he did because he was hearing from the retired flag officers the impacts that climate change was going to have more in the sense of um, resource wars abroad that we would get sucked into yeah. because this was a you know also this was a different time we didn't have the resource we didn't know about the natural gas resources that we have today right. since discovered but um, you know we have those issues on our own bases here and especially if you look at the navy and they're all um, you know obviously on the coasts and and I think one other sort of hidden not so hidden cost is also response you know emergency response to natural disasters and. Uh, you were oh so when we were talking about the EU didn't the EU um, already announce that they were going to impose a border adjustable tax starting in 2022 or 2023 I'm not sure if COVID's changed yeah we should probably check the specific day I mean and you bring up another issue even your question itself reveals one of the biggest challenges I think on this issue. And that is, there's just so much information out there. <laughs> and it's such a complicated issue scientifically, um, uh, geographically. Um, you know, it requires a lot of cooperation, collaboration around the globe. And if we are not going to lead, um, no one else can. And uh, we will end up with a, um, a bit by bit, you know, uh, type of, of policy initiatives around the globe and it will not be sufficient and it will it will inevitably be um, too late to um, counteract a lot of um, the damage that's been done and, and, and frankly will, will is likely to accelerate in the years to come. Yeah. Well, and to tie this back to your Wall Street Journal piece about um, younger voters, I mean, I have a Gen Z uh, first time voter um, coming up, first time voter, and uh, another in high school. And, you know, for them, climate change is a no brainer, right? They learn about yeah. it in their AP environmental science class. And it's, you know, I think it's an issue that younger generations, because they've lived their whole lives seeing the impacts, they care more about. So like at the policy level, at the, the DC level, we need to be catching up with what that, you know, rising generation of leaders is, you know, hoping to see happen. And, and, you know, we have a lot of, pardon me, we have a lot of good leaders on both sides. We have like Kira O'Brien, I've mentioned before. Um, I feel like the younger people are there and then, you know, the millennials are mostly there. And then Gen X is a little kind of half and half like we, but we, we have to kind of get, we have to make bipartisanship sexy again, right? So that people want to come together and do this because like you said, we're not going to, the world's not going to solve the issue unless we take a lead, but we can't take a lead in our current political environment because the two sides are just going to throw stones at each other. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think the business community it has, has, now demonstrated that they are willing to lean in much more than they ever have before. Um, I, I think that what, you know, what becomes very critical in the next year is that environmental groups, particularly on the left, um, don't get into this uh, perfect being the enemy of the good, because I do think that there is a middle ground that can really, really make substantial um, progress uh, on the issue, um, but it won't be done if um, you don't have, frankly, if you don't have the energy companies at the table and you don't have the business community at the table. Um, so, and, and we've also seen, um, you know, uh, to me, the, the most, 
the most compelling conservative case for why we need to tackle climate change um, from a public policy perspective is what you read when um, uh, lending institutions and I think it was, I think it was the Fed uh, or FOMC, you know, you start seeing a lot of bond rating agencies and what the cost of it is um, over the long haul and what the risks uh, really truly are. And um, frankly, go talk to a farmer, um, you know, and, and what, what the agricultural season is now versus what it used to be. And, you know, issues related to food insecurity or food security. So th those are, those are beyond ideological when you start dealing with dollars and cents and the stability of our financial system, the stability of um, our food supply. Um, though it's easier, I think, to, to paint a, real world application to a, to someone living in this country than, than what the, the national security risk is for, um, you know, migration patterns from Northern Africa into Europe, right? That, which is also, there are also issues there, but the point is you really do have to make it a pocketbook issue and, and what's the, what's the impact, you know, on a family, in two years, you know, in suburban America, you know, or, you know, along the coast where rising sea levels are, is frankly a, a real risk to a lot of homes and a lot of communities. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's just so much at stake that we don't even think about. We think of, you know, the environment and polar bears and, but it's, it's way bigger than all of that. And getting those messages out. So one last little thing, and I'll let you get on with your day. And it does require you to have a little bit of a crystal ball. But if you had to guess, if you just had to pick a year that you think we could have a price on carbon, what year would you put your, uh, you know, it's a good question. There's just too many variables. Look, I don't know who the, if, if, if who wins the presidential race, mm -hmm. who controls the Senate, that will dictate what kind of policies um, get put in within the next year. I, I've just started to see that for Democrats, it's either a non-starter amongst the far left or not sufficient. And so, you know, it's actually less about, I think, pricing carbon than it is some of the other issues related with it, the escalator on it. Um, what does that mean to um, uh, the regulatory framework? What does it mean, you know, do states are our states still are states preempted from their pricing programs? Um, how does the carbon border adjustment work? So th there's just a lot of other issues that are that if pricing is the central feature, the ancillary features I think still need fleshed out. And and to me, that's where that's the real nuts and bolts of this. I think increasingly policymakers understand the argument uh, related to pricing. And frankly, if they don't outwardly externally agree with it, intuitively grasp that that is the way to bring everybody to the table. Um, but it's, it's, again, those ancillary issues that still need to be flushed out. So it's very difficult for me to, to say that with certainty, but you know, it is now 2020. Um, you know, I think this decade is a decade that we will be defined 
And I'm not saying it'll take, you know, eight or 10 years. I'm not saying that at all. But I think if you look back in the arc of human history, this will be, we, this decade will be defined by whether we um, stepped up to the challenge and provided a, a real clear solution um, and all marched in, in the same direction on it, you know, similar to, you know, past decades in the 20th century in dealing with foreign threats. Um, you know, this is a threat of a different sort and it's a global threat. And we do have an opportunity to be the leader, um, or, which we've historically been on big, you know, existential issues. For sure. Well, I hope you're right. I have high expectations for this decade and not just because my kids are going to find their professional footing in it, but um, I thank you so much for everything that you do and for your time and your insight today. And uh, we'll definitely have you back sometime, you know, maybe we can have another little check-in after the election when it looks clear. Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, Price, for putting our latest episode together at the last minute, I think that we, and by we, I mean you, did a really good job. Thank you. That was quick. That was uh, having to make quick work of things because sometimes... We're just going to like pull the curtain back, right? And show people like normally we do this ahead of time and we're having our little wrap-up call on on Thursday before the Tuesday episode drop. But this is Monday at 5.15 and in less than 18 hours, people are going to be listening to this. We work hard for our listeners and we work hard to get good guests. And we got it this week with Ryan Costello. And I'm going to tell you, I do have a little bit of beef with you. The beef I've got yes. is in the first segment, the whose line is it? I want in next time. I didn't get a chance to get in on this one. And I'm glad I didn't because that was a tricky, tough one out of the gate. But it I want was in. a really fun one. And, and what's funny is that I realized because you were on one of, I, I think it was when Bob sent me his audio that you, he CC'd you. So then I felt like I gave it away. But yes, this week I already have it picked out. I will let you have a shot at taking a guess as well. I intentionally didn't listen to any of those guesses until <laughs> until it was time to put this baby together. And so I did not I was I was ready, amped up, and then there was no spot for me. I said, okay, next week I'm just gonna let her know I want in. So I want All in. right, you're in. Um, <laughs> shout out to some of our new members real quick. Uh, John S. in Florida, Mickey D. in Illinois, Jeanette R. in Massachusetts, Maureen M. in Iowa, and Brian K. in Texas. Also, uh, a couple shout outs to a couple groups uh, that gave uh, us the opportunity to to speak with them recently. Brandon Schuler's uh, South Florida, University of South Florida Environmental Law class. Bob had the chance to speak uh, with them last week and with a uh, student at the U- University of South Carolina. Um, and then also uh, later this afternoon to the uh, University of Virginia Law Christian Fellowship Group. So a lot of, um, we got a lot of things firing up, uh, class visits and Zooms and a lot of different things. And if you want to have Bob or a member of our team speak to your class, to your organization, your club, Whatever it is, we need to reach more and more conservatives. Let us know. Drop us a line, republicin.org. We will make it happen. For sure. And if you are listening to this episode on Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon, we have a webinar at 
Oh, Price, is it one o'clock? <laughs> that would be one thirty Tuesday 1:30. afternoon, the twenty second of September. Yes. Right. So if you're catching us Tuesday morning and you want more, you get you ha- your wish is our command. You can participate in this webinar, uh, Zoom webinar. I mean, all webinars are Zoom, duh, with Bob and Lindsay Linsky, who was in one of our earlier episodes. She's um, an author, uh, the author of the book, Keep It Good. And then also joining us in conversation, Pastor Milo. So, and he's from South Carolina, right, Price? He is. He is from uh, the upstate of South Carolina. Got to know Milo and uh, his wife, Erin, when they lived in the uh, 4th Congressional District when I worked for Bob in the Congressional Office. So they are a uh, wonderful, wonderful family and really appreciate Milo's friendship and his, uh, you know, his uh, help over the years because he's uh, set up some events uh, for us up there in upstate New York now. So uh, really appreciate him and that partnership. I want to uh, one more plug. We're plugging away right now. Um, plug Stitcher, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast every single week. Download, listen, subscribe. It is one click of the button to subscribe to the EcoRight Speaks. It will be delivered right to your smartphone, iPad, laptop, whatever it is you use. Go ahead and hit subscribe. We are on probably we are we should be on any of your favorite podcast app download subscribe and give us a review because we are trying to get to 100 for one our host chelsea henderson that's right and we are still you know still have a ways to go so not to sound like a fundraising drive but it's up to you listener you like this episode it's just a click just it's a click. right there on your app. It's just a click. It's like scrolling through your Tinder feed or scrolling through Instagram. It's so easy. All right. Keep it clean now. Keep it clean. All right. <laughs> Until next week, uh, we pulled this one together and we successfully pulled it off. Episode 15 is in the books. A nice round number. Chelsea, we'll do it again next week. Yes, sir. I'll see you then. And I will make sure you get to participate in these line is it anyway next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader. 